Good morning. We now join a live Bible study from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Ladue, Missouri. Good morning. This is Pastor Glenn Thomas of St. Paul's Lutheran Church, actually in De Pere, Missouri, neighboring Ladue, and uh, we like everyone in Ladue as well. It's good to have all of you here this morning on this Palm Sunday morning, people here in our gymnasium, people joining us on KFUO 850 AM and worldwide at KFUO.org. This morning we continue with our normal practice of uh, taking a closer look at the scripture lessons that are assigned for next Sunday, which happens to be Easter Sunday, of course. So there won't be any mystery as to what the theme is uh, that we'll be looking at uh, for, next, uh, for, for today, for next Sunday. Uh, also, uh, we certainly want to issue an invitation to anyone who does not have a church home uh, in the St. Louis area to worship with us this Holy Week. Uh, we have services, first of all, Monday, Thursday at 11 a.m. and 7 p.m. Good Friday, we have a new service that we're offering this year at 12.05, and it will conclude at about 12.50 p.m., specially designed for those who might be able to worship over the noon hour, over their lunch hour from work, and perhaps bring a colleague or two along as well. That would be great. Uh, also on Good Friday at uh, 5 o'clock and 7 o'clock p.m., and the 7 o'clock being a Tenebrae service, and then, of course, on Easter morning, uh, we will have services at 8, 9.30, and 11. So if any in the St. Louis area uh, are without a church home or a place to worship uh, this Holy Week, we certainly invite and encourage you to be with us. We'd love to have you. Let's begin then with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, especially as we enter this most holy week, we are ever mindful of you, your love for us and your son's sacrifice for us on the cross. That he went there to endure all the punishment that should be ours as a result of our sin. And that especially also he rose again victorious from the grave. And by your grace through faith in him, we share that victory over sin, death, and the grave. We ask your Holy Spirit's presence and guidance today as we consider your word and especially those scripture lessons that we will be reading next Sunday. And we pray that you, your spirit might work through them to increase our knowledge and understanding of your word and also of the victory that is ours through your son. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. For those who are here with us, there are sheets on the side that have the readings and the collect of the day. And let's start with that collect of the day at the top of the sheet. That's the prayer, of course, that comes right before the scripture readings and kind of collects the main theme or themes of the day in a short, concise prayer. And again, there's no mystery here as to uh, what that theme is, but let's take a look at it. It reads, Almighty God the Father, through your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, you have overcome death and opened the gate of everlasting life to us. Grant that we, who celebrate with joy the day of our Lord's resurrection, may be raised from the death of sin by your life-giving Spirit. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. So isn't that a beautiful encapsulation, I get encapsulation, you might say, of the theme for Easter? Uh, right in the first line, overcoming death or conquering death open the gate to everlasting life. Isn't that a beautiful way of picturing it? It's like everlasting life is there and the gate is opened up to us now. It's a beautiful uh, metaphor, beautiful image uh, for that. And notice there the celebrating with joy, our Lord's resurrection, that we may be raised from death, from the death of sin by your life-giving spirit. And we're gonna talk about being raised to new life with Christ, both now, as we believe, is referred to in the, in the scriptures as the first resurrection and then the second resurrection, so to speak, as scripture describes it on the day that Christ returns. So let's begin. We're going to look at uh, the Old Testament lesson first. And remember, on a festival day like Easter, all three lessons are going to echo the same theme or follow the same theme uh, on what we might call just regular old Sundays. Usually it's the Old Testament lesson and the Gospel lesson that echo the same theme. But on a festival Sunday like Easter, we'll see that all three of the lessons are trumpeting the same theme. 
So let's go, we're in Isaiah 65 here, second from last chapter in the book of Isaiah. And let's read this through uh, first and then to kind of get the whole picture and then we will come back and kind of take it apart. Starting verse 17 of Isaiah 65. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days for the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be, shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall be the days of, shall be the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. All right, so going back here, we are actually, in the, in the book of Isaiah here, actually talking about, the ultimately, the second coming of Christ, the great day of the Lord that is yet to come. Just a little context again, remember that God's people would have read or heard these words as they are in captivity in Babylon. And they would have, these are words of great joy, as you can see, where God is talking about the restoration of not only his people, but of his entire creation, including us. And just before this, uh, in the first uh, 16 verses of Isaiah 65, God has spelled out the great division, the great divide between those who reject him and are accursed and those who by faith are his people and the great blessings that come as a result of that okay and so here he picks up now in 17 through 25 and here he elaborates on the great blessings that there will be for his people and for his creation on that great day and of course the restoration of his people and his creation is only made possible by his son's life, death, and resurrection. So that, that's the, the huge tie-in that we have here to Easter and the resurrection from the dead. Let's go back now to verse 17. For behold, so whenever you read those words, what are we thinking? Behold. Take notice. This is something big, you know. Uh, uh, this is uh, something to pay attention to. God is speaking here. I create now that's the same word, and notice it's used three times uh, in these two verses. I create is the same word that is used in Genesis uh, 1 verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Same word. I create, notice there, new heavens and a new earth. So this is after this world has been... Uh, uh, I'm going to say destroyed in the sense of, a, of annihilation, but this world has come to its end, and we know that as God brought about the end of all but eight people and two animals of every kind the first time, he used what to do that? What agent did he use for that? Blood, water. Uh, we know that the next time it's going to be not water, but fire that God will be using. So now we're talking about what is after judgment, what is after that, that day. And notice there, there's a new heaven and a new earth, one that is completely and totally restored. 
and without sin. It is all made perfect and made new. Uh, this echoes, if you have a Bible with you, uh, if we look at Revelation chapter 21, Revelation 21, uh, we see the same language used here in the book of Revelation. Uh, and I'm going to start at verse 1 of Revelation 21, which is depicting the same thing, the, the, the new heaven and the new earth coming after Judgment Day now. Starting at verse 1, uh, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And so there is that ultimate restoration that God will do in making all things new on that last day. And that would include us, our bodies. Uh, let's just review. When a Christian dies, we would say that the body obviously does what? Remains here. Okay? And it is either cremated or I guess uh, we could say it's either cremated or embalmed uh, or if it's uh, lost at sea or lost in a you know, fire and not recovered somehow. Anyway, the physical body stays here. And what happens with the spirit or the soul goes to be with the Lord, okay? Awaiting the day that we're talking about here, the day when uh, Christ will return. And then what's going to happen to our bodies on that day when Christ returns? They will be raised and made new, right? No longer uh, made new, no longer bearing the impact or the results, we could say, the, the, uh, the uh, implications of sin in our bodies any longer. Uh, in other words, uh, recreated or created new the way God originally created us before sin entered in the Garden of Eden, okay? And that's what we see here. So God's creation is being restored. And when you stop and think about it, when Jesus walked this earth and demonstrated his authority uh, and power over sin and over evil, how did we see in what he did some glimpses of this restoring of God's creation and making it new? Can you kind of follow what I'm saying here? What did Jesus do, let's say, for example, to those who were suffering the impact of sin in terms of they were blind? What did he do? Healed them. Gave them sight, right? Deaf? Here? Lame? Walk? How about death? Raised three people. At least the, I always say he raised three people that we know of, in addition to, him, in addition to his own resurrection. He raised three people that we know of in the scriptures, right? So you see already with Christ that something new has begun in that we're just getting a glimpse as he walked this earth of what it's going to be when sin is completely done away with. And when the penalty for sin, death, is completely done away with. He, he inaugurated, you might say, uh, making all things new. And they're not com it's not done yet, it's not completed yet. But we caught little glimpses of it as he walked this earth. And there is going to come that day when all things will be made new. And, of course, we always ask the question, that people ask me, well, Pastor, you know, am I going to come back as a 30-year-old or a 20-year-old? Or, you know, what's it going to be? I, we, we don't know. We're not, we're not given that. And actually, time, uh, we really wonder if time will even be a matter at that point. Or what, what are, you know, there are a lot of questions that we don't know. But things that we do know 
is that just as God, when he created the heavens and the earth in, in Genesis and said, it is good, it is very good as a matter of fact, after day six, uh, so will be his new creation of all things, okay? And uh, we won't look at it just for reasons of time, but 2 Peter 3.13 also has this, this language of new heavens and a new earth. Um, there, there is this sort of, Paul in Romans 8.21 uh, talks about, uh, about all creation being liberated or set free, in other words, from the bondage of sin that it's under. And so that's something that we just can't imagine because we are so accustomed to living in this world uh, with, with the impacts of sin and uh, with a cold, blowing Palm Sunday, like it's not supposed to be, right? <laughs> uh, that, no, but uh, we just can't imagine what that's going to be like. And the same with our own bodies and, and, and what that existence will be like. Uh, it, is all, it is all being made new by God on that day, okay? And uh, going on there, notice here, uh, the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. What former things are we talking about here? No longer be remembered. Sin, yeah. We want, wouldn't it be nice not even to remember what that was like, to, to live in that existence like we are? And again, I don't want to say, you know, it's, I don't want everybody leave here depressed today, but, but you know, to not even remember what it's like to, to, to experience sin would be fantastic, right? Uh, and so not only sin, but our sins in particular too, right? I mean, we've got to throw that in there. And to not even remember what that old creation was like anymore. The one that was, as Paul says, is groaning, uh, waiting to be released. It'll be a whole new existence for us, one like we have never experienced before. Okay? So Christ has not only redeemed us, but he is also, by his victory over sin and uh, all of sin's penalties upon us and upon creation, has triumphed over all of them and over Satan and over all evil and makes all of this possible, okay? So, former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. Uh, 18, but be glad and rejoice. Notice there, not just for a little bit, rejoice forever. In that which I, here's that word again, in that which I create, notice there. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. Now, let me just comment here. Uh, Jerusalem does not necessarily at all mean the uh, physical city of Jerusalem. The uh, book of Revelation in particular talks about uh, the church, the, the tr church triumphant, as being the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven. We just were reading a bit of that. Adorned beautifully as a bride prepared for her husband. And that's the Jerusalem that we're talking about here, the, the church triumphant. Uh, and, and notice there that it, he is going to create that uh, to be a joy for her people and to be gladness. Uh, verse uh, 19, I will rejoice in Jerusalem. Now you look in the Old Testament, were there times when God was not rejoicing in Jerusalem? Yeah, quite a bit, especially before they go into exile. In fact, just the opposite. He's not rejoicing at all. That's why they are going to be judged and thrown into exile. Uh, there's idolatry. There's, there's injustice one toward another. There's oppression of one person or group over another and all kinds of sins. And so God formerly was not happy with Jerusalem. Notice now he is rejoicing over them. So I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. So again, any of the suffering or pain associated with sin, no longer there. Uh, no longer shall there be, an, again, more of the effects of sin here, I guess, in 20 and 21. I'm looking at the clock here. Um, <clears throat> that they will be no more. Okay, so uh, infants who die... Uh, people who don't live out as long as they should in their lives and so on. Um, 22 uh, is kind of interesting. It's a kind of a, re a reversal of the curses when God is telling his people that they are going to be judged, they are going to be taken to Babylon, 
one of the ways he tells them this is uh, that you, you will build something and you won't live in it. You won't inhabit it. Or you will plant and somebody else is going to eat what you planted. In other words, it's a way of saying you're going to be carted off. And all the work you're doing, somebody else, namely the Babylonians, uh, are going to inhabit it. Notice here is just the opposite. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree, that's long life, shall be the days of my people, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. Okay? Um, verse 23, what do you think it is meant there that he, bearing children for calamity, no longer shall they be bearing children, labor in vain, or bear children for calamity? What do you think? Bearing children that come into a great calamity, great trouble in the world, right? Um, even we sometimes say, I know I sometimes think about, boy, what, what kind of world is it going to be in another 20 or 30 years, you know, for my, my grandchildren uh, to live in, right? Have you, some of you a little bit... A little bit more senior had those thoughts. I know I, I do from time to time. And you see something on television, you think, oh my. And what kind of world is it going to be, you know, or for my great-grandchildren someday. You know, I don't know whether I'll be around to see them, but, but you know, that, kind of get that idea that bringing children into the world that is uh, in great calamity. And, no, and God is saying here, no longer shall that be. Don't have to worry about that uh, whatsoever. Um, they shall be instead the offspring, uh, blessed of the Lord. Now, isn't verse 24 a wonderful verse? That before they call, I will answer, says God. So in other words, before they pray, before they express their petition, before they even ask, I will answer them. And uh, while they are yet speaking, I will hear. Now, this is the exact opposite of, again, what happened previously. We won't look it up because of time, but Isaiah 64, verse 6, if you're writing things down, Isaiah laments that there is nobody calling on God's name. Okay? Isaiah 64, verse 6. And then in Isaiah 65, 12, Isaiah laments that God kept calling for his people, but nobody was answering him. And so this is the exact opposite now. After that, on that last day, or after that last day, before they call, I will already answer. And while they are yet speaking, I will hear. Now, is that verse 24, is that only after the last day? Or is that a present-day reality for us as Christians as well? That before we even speak the petition, God knows it and answers it. And while we are yet speaking, he hears. Yeah, that's a present-day reality for us as well. Um, and we rejoice in that. And again, that is only through Jesus Christ that we can approach the Father, appro approach the throne of grace, Doing so with, again, as James reminds us, God reminds us through James, that the prayer of a righteous man avails much before the Lord. So we pray daily with the confidence and with the, the trust that God knows our needs, that he will answer them, and in the way that is best for us, and especially best for our eternal welfare. And we won't get off on a long, we could get off into a sidebar on prayer here, but... Uh, we better better continue through. And then finally, the last, um, what do you make of verse 25 in this new creation? What's so strange going on there in verse 25, the way God describes it? <laughs> you ever see, a, ever see a, a, a wolf and a lamb graze together? Uh, not for long, anyway. Uh, and uh, the idea here is, again, the hostility in all of the creation, all of God's creation is done away with. There's no more, uh, you know, uh, his creation turning against other parts of it, killing other parts of it. Notice there, the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The lion shall not eat the ox. The lion shall eat straw like the ox does. 
Uh, but notice here who gets, who's not a part of this uh, new creation near the end, or verse uh, 25 there. The serpent. Notice there he is cursed forever. Uh, remember the curse in Genesis 3, 14 and 15 after God comes and confronts the devil with what he has done. And uh, actually in Revelation 20, verse 10, we have the serpent being thrown into, or the serpent and Satan being thrown into the lake of burning fire. So the serpent is not uh, going to be enjoying that wonderful, restored new creation. Okay? All right, let me stop there. And before we go on to the epistle, any uh, questions, comments, thoughts at all? All right, let's go on to the epistle. And the epistle is from 1 Corinthians 15, which should not surprise us. The entire chapter in 1 Corinthians 15 is Paul dealing with the resurrection, a physical bodily resurrection from the dead. Now, the Corinthians had a rather strange set of beliefs, I guess you would say. Two things they believed that we would say, and Paul is going to point out to them, absolutely contradict one another. They believed on the one hand that Christ rose from the dead, and they would not deny it. And I've always thought, quite frankly, uh, well, let me finish this. Uh, they believed Christ rose from the dead, but they at the same time believed there is no resurrection from the dead. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 is going to be pressing them on this. But stop and think about this for a moment. If the Corinthians were not believing in a resurrection of the dead, in other words, that's impossible, can't happen, but they believed that Christ rose from the dead, why would they believe that Christ rose from the dead? Because there were so many reports and so many sightings of a risen Jesus Christ. To me, this is one of the strongest, I will grant you it's a subtle argument, but one of the strongest arguments that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is an historical fact. That at the same time, people who deny the resurrection, a bodily resurrection, would at the same time say, but we know Christ rose from the dead. And the only reason they could hold those two things, you would think, is because the evidence of Christ's resurrection was so great and so powerful that even they could not deny it. Okay? So, 1 Corinthians 15, if we take a look at it, Paul is going to start in the first, in verses uh, 12 and 13, and again, if you have a Bible, I'll just read this, but if you want to take a look at it, before our text, Paul says in verse 12, now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So he's, he's calling them on their illogical conclusion here right from the beginning. You, you guys say that Christ rose from the dead, but how can you say if that's true, how can you say there is no resurrection? Verse 13, but if there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. So he does it both ways, both directions. If you say Christ rose from the dead, how can you say there's no resurrection from the dead? If you say there's no resurrection from the dead, how can you say Christ rose from the dead? See? He's, he's pointing out to them their illogical uh, beliefs here and, and, and trying to do so. Now, I won't read through the whole thing, but the verses up to our text then, uh, basically 14 through 18, is Paul saying, what are the negative results then if we are going to conclude that there is no resurrection of the dead and Christ is not raised from the dead? A whole bunch of things. Our faith is in vain. We are still in our sins. Paul is, is uh, caught misrepresenting God. And, uh, you know, basically he goes down this litany of things that would be the result of there being no resurrection from the dead or Christ not rising from the dead, okay? And so then finally, we get to our text, and let's take a look at verse 19. Uh, he says here, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. 
In other words, again, if there is no resurrection from the dead, and or if Christ has not been raised from the dead, and what's the result? I guess we can only hope about uh, hope in Christ for things in this world, and if that's the case, then we're of all people most to be pitied. In other words, Christ is not only for us in this world, but for us eternally in the world to come. Are there some people today walking this earth who would look to Christ only for things in this world? And look at him as, what, a great moral example? A great example of how to love one another? Uh, a great teacher? Yeah, unfortunately, there are. And uh, now Christ is all of those things. I'm not, I'm not uh, denying that. But chiefly, Christ is eternal Savior from sin, death, and the devil. Right? He came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So he is all of those things, but chiefly he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. So to cut him short in your thinking from his major work is really a pity. And to look at him as only a great example or a great teacher or whatever. Okay? So that's what Paul points out to him, uh, to them. Now, verse 20. Now here it comes. But in fact, or but as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead. Bodily, physically raised from the dead. Okay? Now here's an expression: the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, first fruits might, might seem like a, a strange term to us. It actually is an agricultural term, and it goes back to the Old Testament. We won't, again, because of time, we won't look this up. But you can look up in Exodus 23, verse 19, that when the harvest was to be brought in, the first portion of that harvest was to be dedicated to whom? To God. And it was an acknowledgement by the, the people that this harvest that is out there in the field is a gift from God, that it, it comes from God. And, but there was also the understanding that this first fruits was only the first installment of an incredible harvest yet to come. So what's, what's the analogy here? How can we speak then of Christ being raised from the dead as the first fruits of all who have fallen asleep? There's, he's, he's the, I'd say, the first installment on a huge harvest yet to come, right? Those who have fallen asleep would be those, uh, not, not who have fallen asleep in church on Sunday, but those who have, have died. Some of them maybe have fallen asleep in church as well. But no, the Bible uses that term to speak about death in, in a number of places. So Christ is sort of, you might say, leading the way by his physical bodily resurrection from the dead, and all who will come after him by grace through faith will be the, the uh, following the leader, so to speak, following his example. Okay, so that's just another way of saying that. Uh, verse 21. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Paul in a couple of spots in his epistles uh, speaks of Christ as the second Adam. First Adam, he makes a comparison here. By the first Adam, and that of course would be the Adam of Adam and Eve, in the garden came sin and death by a second man, or a second Adam, namely Christ, comes life, okay? Comes uh, righteousness and life, okay? So he's making that, making that comparison. But, verse 23, but each in his own order, or in his own turn, in his own uh, arrangement. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Okay, so Christ went first, then when he comes, we'll go all who belong to Christ. So that's the order that is established here. Verse 24, then, and the, the then is at his second coming, comes the end. Now the end here 
is not just the, the uh, end of or the, the finish of life here on this earth. That word end here means also can be translated the goal or the fulfillment. Okay? Uh, it is the same Greek word that Jesus uses from the cross when he says, it is finished. Okay? So that's what we're saying here. Then comes the finish. It's the idea of something going across the finish line, going across the goal, okay? So then comes, you might say, uh, the, the, the goal or the purpose of God's redemptive history when he, God, del I'm sorry, sorry, when he, Christ, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. So we take those to be obviously the evil powers, principalities and powers that are aligned against God and against the church. For he must reign, the Father must reign until he, the Father, has put all his enemies under his Christ's feet. And uh, that, of course, happened at the ascension of Christ where he reigns now at the right hand of God. It will become... Uh, uh, finally fulfilled on the last day when all of them are completely wiped out of existence verse 26 the last enemy to be destroyed is death now let's talk about that for a second the last enemy to be destroyed is death notice how the Bible speaks about death here does it sound like it's something uh, good wholesome positive uh, something we should uh, enjoy no. Remember, death was not a part of God's original creation and only is the result of sin. It is the penalty for sin. Now, Paul says the wages of sin is death. Okay? And so, uh, death, and we're sort of in a now but not yet sort of situation. Has Christ conquered death by his, by his life, death, and resurrection from the dead? Yes. But death still exists, unfortunately. Just like our old sinful nature still exists, and we know that only too well inside of us, we still experience death. Death still takes from us our friends and our loved ones. But on that last day, death itself will be finally destroyed in the sense that it will be terminated. It will no longer even exist. And just, a, uh, just one comment. I know that I've heard this, maybe you have as well, that, uh, you know, it'd be the death of a Christian and it will, a statement will be made um, along the lines of, something along the lines of, well, this is not a sad time, this is a celebration. And there is, I, I will grant you, there is a sense of that, but we don't deny, as Christians, we don't deny the sadness either that this person is no longer with us. And so it's not, um, I think sometimes, we, if we're not careful, we, we go out of our way to make people feel guilty if they're feeling sad at the death even of a fellow Christian. And so it's not that we don't grieve. I always tell people, you know, if you feel like shedding tears, then shed tears. And people sometimes are afraid, you know, at a funeral, uh, Christians to cry, and uh, they'll say something, well, I don't want people to think I'm not a Christian or I don't believe in Christ. No, I'm not going to think that. It's just a natural human emotion. We grieve, as Paul says, but we do not grieve as those who have no hope. There's the difference, right? We have not only a hope, and, and uh, we have the sure and certain hope of victory over sin, death, and the grave. So just a thing to say there, I, I sometimes get a little um, uneasy with these kind of statements that, well, this is a victory party. Well, yeah, in a sense it is, because of Christ's victory that we're celebrating, and the fact that that person is now in the, the soul, is in the presence of God, and that's uh, something definitely to be celebrated and to thank God for. But we don't want to deny that there still is that, that very real human emotion that death still brings in us as we experience the loss of a friend or a loved one, okay? So I just want to point that out. It's good, uh, maybe a good spot to point it out because the Bible talks about death as the last enemy to be destroyed here, and it will on that day. Just think of that, too. We are so accustomed to living in a world where things die, right? I mean, it's, 
it's programmed in. And think of that, where there will be no more death. Nothing will ever cease to exist. Again, we just can't, can't imagine what that's like. Okay? And Christ makes all that, clears the way for that to happen. All right? So let me stop here. Any uh, comments, questions on this part? Yes, Jane. Oh, okay. All right, so the question was, were our sins forgiven on Friday when he said it is finished, or were they not forgiven until he rose from the dead? That was your question? Yeah. Well, we don't get into pinpointing a precise time, but we'll say this. What is it that paid for our sins? It was the blood of Jesus Christ shed for us. His suffering and death on the cross is what paid for our sins. And his resurrection from the dead is, I guess you would say, proof positive that that, that, that payment was all sufficient, that there's nothing else that needs to be done. And it also, as we or saw here that that resurrection from the dead is showing us he's he's going first and we're coming after him as well but in terms of paying for our sins or our sins being forgiven it's the the blood and the life the bloodshed the life given on the cross that pays our sin right he paid for us not not by gold or silver but with his holy precious blood and his innocent suffering and death as luther says Yes, uh, yeah, the, the statement was made, it'd be pretty hard to believe that if there wasn't the resurrection. Yes, if we just saw him die and, and, uh, and never saw him again. Now, th this is a very good point, actually, to just stop and think about for a moment. Did Christ have to make all of those post-resurrection appearances? Was he somehow obligated to do that? You know, to the disciple, uh, well, first of all, to Mary uh, at the tomb, uh, Mary Magdalene at the tomb, uh, the two men on the road to Emmaus in the afternoon, sometime after that, Peter, or around that time, Peter, we don't know exactly when. Disciples on Easter evening with the doors locked, and Thomas not there, disciples a week later, Thomas there. Uh, on the Sea of Galilee to eight of them. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 to more than 500 people at one time, most, some of whom have died, but some, uh, most are still alive. Was it, was it mandatory that he do that? No, he didn't have to. His work was done in terms of uh, paying for sin and paying the price for sin. So then one has to ask the obvious question, well, why did he do that? Exactly as you were saying, for us, so that we might see and believe, you know. Uh, and not only those, those disciples, but here we are a couple thousand years later for us as well, right? So that's, that's a good point, good question. All right, anything else? Any other questions, comments? All right, let's get to the Easter Gospel. Uh, we're gonna, this year, uh, we are in Series C, so it's Luke's account that we will be looking at. Uh, Luke 24, 1 through 12. And we got to remember what has happened. I guess we're all pretty familiar with what has occurred up to this point, but just to review, that uh, Jesus um, is on the cross for six hours on Good Friday. He finally uh, succumbs uh, and is taken down from that cross. Anybody remember the uh, surprising man who came to ask for his body? Joseph of Arimathea. And why was it surprising that Joseph of Arimathea came? He was a member of Sanhedrin, the very group that uh, condemned Christ. But Luke makes it clear that he was not agreeing with what they did, okay? And then another surprising guy, he's not in this account, but uh, is Nicodemus, who also was a member of that council and comes bearing 75 pounds of, of spices and, and uh, aloe, okay? So his body is taken down from the cross. It is put in a tomb where <clears throat> no one has ever been yet. And uh, what's the problem though? It's Friday and what is about to begin? Sabbath day, right. The Sabbath day is about to begin because the Sabbath day begins not at uh, midnight on uh, Friday, but sundown on Friday, sundown to sundown on Saturday. 
and they cannot, uh, well, first of all, they cannot do any work on the Sabbath, and so preparing that body would be work, and also coming into contact with a dead body on the Sabbath was, was forbidden. So the women have no choice but to stop their preparation of Jesus' body and wait until the Sabbath is over. And that's where we pick it up. Uh, they have left his body. We know also that uh, uh, from I think it's Matthew's account, a guard was posted uh, and so on. It was sealed, a guard was posted and so on. And now we pick it up uh, on, on, on the Sabbath day being over. So verse one there of Luke 24. But on the first day of the week, so that again would be Sunday, sometimes called the eighth day or the day of new creation here, at early dawn, now that phrase early dawn means you can almost translate it first light, the very first glimmer of light. You know when the sun is just about to come up over the horizon and you get that kind of glow, that's kind of what is described there. At early dawn, or the, the dim light had just, had just come, they, now this would be again the women, went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Okay, and that was a big stone. By the way, you can go to, uh, you can go to Israel today and see these types of tombs. Uh, they are dug into a cave, into a hill rather, a, a cave into a, a hill. And they had one room in the front where they prepared the body and one section in the back where they would lay the body on like a shelf. And so they were in the front part, we think, at least on the first part of Friday, preparing that body uh, with the spices and so on. And the stone now is rolled away, so that shocks them. Uh, verse 3, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord, but Jesus. Now, while they were perplexed about this, now let me stop here for a second. Is just the news of an empty tomb good news? No. Right? What, what, could be the, what, what could be the cause of an empty tomb, of Jesus not being there? Somebody stole his body, sure, yeah. Maybe, uh, you know, they came and took his body away as a scandal. So th th I'm just trying to put us in the, in the shoes of those who are there at the tomb. Right now, all they know is his body is not there. And notice they are perplexed about this. They're troubled about this. They, they aren't feeling any comfort or, or uh, joy at this point, just the opposite. Okay? Um, so verse 4, while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. Well, who would these two men be in dazzling apparel? Angels. Yeah. The dazzling is the same word that's used at uh, Jesus' transfiguration. It comes from the same root, you know, when he glowed, uh, his appearance glowed, okay? And as they were frightened, why do you think they were frightened? They know they're in the presence of, of a heavenly, they're having a heavenly visit here, right? This is not, not the normal thing. So they, they are frightened, and notice they bowed their faces to the ground, so they are you know, shaking in their boots here, so to speak. And um, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? <clears throat> and actually, a better way to translate this, I don't know why we don't translate it this way, is why do you seek the living one among the dead? There's a definite article uh, in front of living, the living one. Why do you seek the living one among the dead? Now, who's the living one that these angels are talking about? Jesus. So right now they know that his body is gone, but he is living. He's alive. Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He, the living one, is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. So what in effect are these two guys telling the women here? He's already predicted this, remember? Remember how he told you? Now the thing is, at that time, did any of the disciples or anybody want to hear any of that from Jesus? No. You know, it's almost like, you know when you go to the doctor 
and you get a diagnosis that you don't want to hear. Maybe it's even shocking. And he or she starts telling you what happens to the rest of what they say after that. It can just, you don't even hardly remember what they said. You have to ask them to repeat it, right? And the same thing you can see happens with the disciples. Every time Jesus starts talking about going to Jerusalem, being handed over to chief priests, scribes, and elders, and be killed, it's like the disciples don't, they don't want to hear that, and don't, don't tell us that. We won't look at it here, but there are three times in Luke's gospel that Jesus does this and uh, predicts his own, uh, his own death and resurrection. Luke 9.22, Luke 9.44, and pretty close to this actually, 18.31-34. Three times in Luke's gospel that he tells them point blank. Now, in addition to that, Jesus said... Uh, he's with his disciples around the temple, and, and the disciples are marveling at the beauty of the temple. And Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it again. And John lets us know that he, they didn't understand, but he was talking about the temple of his body. And remember, it was it uh, last week, yeah, last week, the gospel lesson of the wicked tenants. And remember that uh, the, Jesus tells the parable of the wicked tenants. And finally, the landowner says, I will send my son. Surely they will respect my son. And the, the landowner sends his son. And Jesus, who's telling the parable, says, they took him outside the city and killed him. There again, he's predicting his own crucifixion. Now, why is this good for us to think about? There are some who uh, would, would say to us that, well, you know, Jesus just... Uh, was a victim of circumstances and things just uh, kind of um, unrolled, uh, raveled out of control. And you know, he was here to here to do great things, but it was cut short when he when he was killed on the cross. You know, he was a victim of circumstances. No, not at all. This you can see he knew full well. This was God's plan all along, and and it was not that he was taken off guard or surprised at all. This was exactly what he was here to do. I, 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 I quoted another one before. Uh, Come not to serve, uh, not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. You know, it's, it's all the way through the Gospels. And so uh, the angels here are telling these women, he's not here. Remember what he told you, right? When he was with you in Galilee, when he was with you up north. Okay? All right. Uh, then let's go on. Verse 8. And they remembered. So here the women now remembered his words. And we think probably it's not, it's not unreasonable to suggest that they not only remembered, oh yeah, I remember him saying that, but they also started to understand now what this meant, right? That he's going to rise again on the third day, just like he predicted. Uh, verse 9, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven. Now, why is it 11 and not 12? Judas is gone, right? He's already departed the scene. So they told them to the 11 and to all the rest. Now, we don't know how many there were. There, there's obviously more than the 11 there. Remember, uh, a few chapters ago, Jesus uh, sends out how many? The 72. And they go out on a mission trip, so to speak. Um, there's also, uh, remember, the two men on the road to Emmaus in the afternoon who are not part of the 11 or 12. And uh, uh, so these women and the 11 now, and we don't know how many others, but they're just uh, described here as all the rest. Now, here's the women name. Now, it was Mary Magdalene. Uh, this is simply a lady named Mary who was from the town of Magdala. You can go to Israel today and take a tour of the town of Magdala. There is an incredible excavation going on there of a synagogue from Jesus' time. We don't have any record as to whether Jesus actually was there in that synagogue. Many people conjecture that he likely would have at some point, but we don't know it for sure. It's not in the scriptures. Uh, we also know that uh, Mary uh, Mag from Magdala, or Mary Magdalene, had seven demons passed out of her. Uh, then there is Joanna, 
uh, next, and she is described elsewhere as, uh, uh, this is back in Luke 8, as the wife of the household manager of Herod Antipas. Imagine that. The wife of the, of the household manager of Herod Antipas is a Christian and is following along. Okay? And uh, Mary, the mother of James, we think this is the James, the, uh, the other one, son of Alphaeus. Uh, the, sometimes I think it's called James the Lesser or uh, James the Younger, I think, sometimes. Um, with them, uh, told these things to the apostles. By the way, you know, there were, uh, again, I mentioned Luke 8, there, there is mentioned there a group of women who uh, uh, traveled with Christ and were women of means, and it seems helped support the general mission. This, uh, this uh, Joanna, by virtue of the fact of being married to the household manager, a guy named Cusa, of, of the household of Herod Antipas, we think would have been a higher uh, society class person and a person of some means anyway that's another study for number, another time um, but uh, verse 11 but these words seem to them an idle tale now uh, so you've got a group of women coming back and saying what happened and do the do the uh, the 11 and the others what's their reaction Nah, that can't be that can't be now, I'm not gonna say any more than that uh, verse 12, but Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. So Peter, we're left here, uh, in this account anyway, with Peter going and looking in and seeing, lo and behold, the linen cloths. Now those linen cloths would be the burial cloths that the women would have been using to prepare the body of Christ for burial with those spices, okay? And uh, the, Peter goes in and finds it as it is. And we leave the story there, and in the coming weeks after Easter now, we're going to be seeing a lot of uh, what we call the post-resurrection appearances of Christ. In other words, it's kind of interesting, from Luke's account, all we've got is uh, they, they're looking in and they don't see the, the risen Christ. And we've got the message from the angels. Remember, he said he's going to rise again on the third day. But we haven't seen the risen Christ yet, have we? In Luke's account. We're going to. Got a hand in there. But uh, we will see the risen Christ in the weeks to come. And, of course, we'll, we know that. So we'll be proclaiming that next Sunday. Okay? All right, well, we are out of time, unfortunately, so let's close then with the benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen. Thank you.